Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to Romans chapter 13. And while you turn there, let's do a little bit of a recap. Ever since we hit Romans chapter 12, once we started in that, St. Paul was making a big shift from the vertical to the horizontal, from Coram Deo, facing God, for God's intentions and plans and relationships with the believers and with his Israel, shifting that to Coram Mundo. How do we face the world? How do we face one another? Not in combat, but in the way we treat one another and in the way we understand our role in society. And yes, while this does touch on treating fellow believers well and showing agape love to fellow believers, it's also going to be regarding our persecutors. It's going to be regarding worldly government. It will regard everything we do. The Coram Deo, Coram Mundo distinction is of intense, extreme importance here. Somebody might claim that St. Paul is contradicting himself when he says, hey, you are justified by faith alone. God is the only actor in your salvation. Your works do not save you. And sure, you want to be careful not to sin, but at the end of the day, God is the only one that saves you. It has to be by faith alone. And he goes over this and over this and over this. And then we hit Romans chapter 12 and he starts telling us to do stuff. If you understand that Coram Deo, you are saved by faith alone. Coram Deo, facing the Lord, you are not going to get anywhere, especially any merits regarding your works. That makes sense. St. Paul's first 11 chapters are all about that. But then Coram Mundo facing the world, facing other human beings and what we are to do, your salvation status, what you are as a Christian, who you are in Jesus Christ, will influence how you treat other human beings. This is non-negotiable. Regarding the interaction of faith and works, Christians who are saved by faith do good works. So the accusation that St. Paul here is somehow contradicting himself in tone, if not in hard theology, is explained by the Coram Deo, Coram Mundo distinction related to what the Reformers would refer to as the two kinds of righteousness. Coram Mundo, facing the world, your earthly activities, you have free will. Coram Deo, you do not. Coram Mundo, your good works are meritorious and God rewards them in this world. Coram Deo, facing him regarding your salvation and your eternal fate, your meritorious works count as nothing before him because all is grace regarding God and the sinner who trusts in Jesus. So we even pointed that to Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 where everything was about the government, the state. How do we treat the state? And the answer is, do what they tell you. Submit to them. If a wife has to submit to her husband in all things, 
then yes, the citizen of a state, or the Roman Empire in this case, must submit to their government. But we did carve out the one exception here in which the government commands you to do something that is anti-Christian, something that is against the word of God, in which case your only recourse as a Christian is civil disobedience. And if that results in persecution, to hide or flee as necessary. That's the point. Moving on, though, as we finish chapter 13, we are going to be getting into a message that, if it were truly understood, would anger a whole lot of people more than the commandment to submit to your government. Let's be honest as we read it. Starting in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. All right, let's go back to the eighth verse here, go verse by verse and comment on all of this. St. Paul says a whole lot. He is the master of saying a lot with relatively few words. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In the previous verse, he said, pay to all what is owed to them, using the same word in the Greek, ophaletes, brought together here. Verses 7 and 8 utilize the same concept, owing something, having an obligation to somebody. You should not owe taxes. You should not owe revenue or respect. You pay that respect as soon as you can. Now, of course, the first thing we think of when we hear of owing something is maybe credit card debt or a house loan or something like that. St. Paul is not necessarily opposed to you having a house loan if that's the only way you're going to be able to live somewhere or take care of your family adequately. Yet clearly there is this sense in which Christians should be free from debt and should do their best to be free from debt as quickly as possible. But that's the least of the concerns of this verse. Owe no one anything except to love each other. You owe your neighbor love. Agape love. You owe your fellow Christians 
agape love? Will the expression of that agape love change depending on the person? Absolutely. You love your enemy in a very, very different way and to a much smaller degree than you love your friends and family. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and literally no other human being is given that distinction for the husband. He is to love his wife above every other human being on the entire planet. You love your governing authorities in a different way than you love, say, your kid's sister or your buddy that you work out with in the gym. Yet for each and every one of these people, you owe them love, agape love, looking out for their best interests, regardless of whether you get anything out of it. It is for their sake. If you do not give them that love, if you do not do your best to look out for them, you have stolen from them. To not pay what you owe is to steal. That is a violation of the seventh commandment. You may hear your pastor at one point or another say that if you've broken one of God's ten commandments, you've broken them all. And that's usually the case. After all, if you violate one of God's commandments, you're on the hook for all of them. Hence the need to drown our sins daily in our baptism and in the repentance of our sins. However, St. Paul here is changing the game for how people used to live in the Old Covenant by saying, you owe love to everybody. Now, particularly when he says each other, that is going to apply to the church, to your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ. However, the principle that he expresses right after, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, it means that you fulfill the law and its demands upon you even so far as it touches loving your enemies and loving the stranger. Now again, does that mean that you love everybody equally and does that mean you love everybody in the same way? Absolutely not. A lot of foolish people out there would tell you that Christians have to be some sort of amorphous blob of creatures out there that have zero identity and in their mental capacity cannot distinguish between friend and enemy. That's silly and it is not what St. Paul is getting at here. However, the point still stands. You have to be somebody that shows agape love in all circumstances. If anybody should tell you, oh, Christians have it easy because the laws and commandments that apply to them are so stinking simple, you see. They don't have the thousands of commandments that came out of, say, the Talmud or the traditions of Islam. They don't have to go do Passover. We don't do blood sacrifice, etc. and so forth. Um, those people have never really thought of how difficult it is to obey these commandments. Verse 9 says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. When you consider that, 
and you ask yourself, honestly, have I done this? The answer will always be no or certainly not enough. Now, if you consider these commandments that he lists out here, they are part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, that's commandment number six. You shall not murder, that's commandment number five. You shall not steal, that's number seven. You shall not covet, that's commandments number nine and ten. Breaking any one of these commandments constitutes a mortal sin if you are not penitent of them. That undoes most of Catholicism and Orthodoxy. That undoes a whole lot of Christian soteriological schemes. This should cause a lot more anger than the first seven verses of Romans 13. If all of the commandments are wrapped up in love your neighbor as yourself, then to fail to love your neighbor as yourself constitutes a violation of God's law. And what does that mean? If you are not penitent, if you are not seeking Christ's forgiveness, that means damnation. But newsflash for you, we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves every single day. Every single day we will mess this up. And there is no amount of going to confession. There is no amount of penance. There is no amount of good works that could possibly bridge the gulf of sin that separates you from God on account of your and my failures to love our neighbors as ourselves. The saints can't help you, no matter how much they pray for you in this. Mary cannot help you if every single violation that you commit every single day, which you will commit every single day because you, like me, are a poor, miserable sinner, they can't help you. Nobody can help you except God. And that is why we say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is ultimately the scariest passage in Romans. And it's because it is the opposite of what a whole lot of people think about it. There are tons of people out there that look at these few verses, verses 8 through 10, and go, Wow, that's so great. All I gotta do is love, you know. Man, I don't have to keep track of all these laws here. I don't really have to worry about obedience. I just gotta love people. No, it's the opposite. It is way more expansive than just, man, feel some good stuff about your neighbor. It's way more expansive than just read this list of commandments and don't violate them. Wow, whew, I didn't kill anybody before I died. I guess I'm going to heaven. No, it is way harder now because any failure to love your neighbor equals a violation of the entire law. And it's no surprise that he should bring up the ninth and 10th commandments summed up as you shall not covet because that means concupiscence is sin. Coveting, properly understood, is an internal sin. It is a desire to take from another person which establishes that your concupiscence, the desire to sin, the instinct to sin, the draw to sin is a sin. It is a failure to love your neighbor. St. Paul here is saying that if you are thinking sinful thoughts about your neighbor, you are failing to love him as yourself and therefore guilty of the entirety of the law. What does that merit you? Damnation. 
scariest passage in all of Romans, if not in the entirety of Scripture, because it shows us just how fallen we are. Now, it is a command. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay, if it is commanded to me, then there is no excuse for me to say, I give up, I'm not going to try. You cannot simply fall into despair at your own fallenness, and you are expected to do your best in this. That's why we say, Lord have mercy. St. Paul, in giving us this ultimate coram mundo commandment here, to love your neighbor as yourself, that is the second greatest commandment, in saying this, he gives us the lifestyle for the Christian, one of selfless service, good thoughts, and yes, obedience to the Ten Commandments. Because you don't know how to love your neighbor as yourself if you don't follow those Ten Commandments. Don't let anybody tell you, we don't ever, um, <laughs> we just don't do individual commandments except to love, okay? Yeah, whenever they say that, they're really just trying to appropriate the word love to mean what they want it to do. It's another sneaky way to replace God's morality with human morality. Because it's a lot easier to fulfill when you have your own morals and not God's morals. Oh, how easy it is to say you're a good person when you define good person as somebody that's exactly like you. St. Paul gives us zero room for that. And in fact, he gives us a true ethic, which undoes a whole lot of the pretenses that the church has erected over history. Chances are, if you're sitting in a cell, praying the canonical hours and praising God all day, you're not loving your neighbor as you ought to. Most monks have been dismal failures regarding the commandment to love their neighbor. Same as people out there who are not monks. We are all dismal failures at this. And yes, people will have differing degrees of what you call civic righteousness. Some people are better at the Coram Mundo commands regarding righteousness than others. But facing God, given that it is your Coram Mundo actions that determine whether or not you are a sinner before God, using your free will for good or evil, the response of the entirety of the church ought to be, Lord, have mercy. And praise God for the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul here, that he does not leave us with just the law. In verse 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. St. Paul here. In saying that salvation is near unto us, nearer than when we first believed, the passage of time bringing us closer to the return of Christ and our ultimate salvation, eternal life at the resurrection that Jesus provides for us, he is telling you that your failures to love your neighbor do not count against you regarding your eternal fate if you trust in Jesus. 
he is telling the Roman congregation, you are still saved. On the off chance they hear this great, overarching, overwhelming commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, and they hear that violating that, failing to love your neighbor as yourself, equals a violation of all of God's commandments, here St. Paul says, don't worry, though, you are still saved. Salvation is nearer to you than when you first believed. Every day is one day closer to Christ's return. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The night that we go through, our sinful state is going to end the same way the night is replaced by the day as the light of Christ shines upon us. So he says it's time for you to wake from sleep. It's like it's twilight. There is a new day approaching. Wake up, O sleeper, and let Christ shine upon you. Let him be your righteousness before God. Coram Deo. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You are saved. You understand that your failures do not constitute damnation for you. So now that you are saved, now that God has made things perfect for you, Coram Deo, in your relationship with him, that he is the one reaching out and saving you, now live like that. He's promised you perfection, that you will one day be perfected in your human nature in a resurrected body. Start acting like that. Start practicing this new life. So we don't do drunkenness. We don't do orgies. We, we're not hedonists. We're not going to be quarreling and jealous with one another. Instead, we're going to love our neighbor because we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does St. Paul mean by that? Well, in Galatians 3.27, he says, whoever is baptized into Christ is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is calling us to remember our baptism and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He invites you to struggle. Instead of despair because you're damned, struggle because you are saved. Let me repeat that. Instead of going into despair over your failures and your sins, which merit eternal wrath, instead you are invited to struggle against your sin because you are saved saved. And the more you do this, when he says cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, the more you do your best to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's leading you in good works and sanctification, the more this acts as armor which protects you from the enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You are safer from evil when you engage in this struggle to take off the works of darkness, throw them away, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, remember your baptism, that God has promised you salvation, and then to do your best to love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, Romans 13 verses 8 through 14 is 
clearly one of the scariest passages in the entirety of Scripture because of the burden that it lays on our shoulders. But then St. Paul, good pietist that he was, says that it's okay because the third use of the law is predicated upon us already being saved. It is the interaction between Coram Deo, facing God, you are already saved as a faithful believer in Jesus Christ, and Coram Mundo, you have responsibilities and actions that you must do as a Christian, as somebody who is saved. Now, Chapter 14 is going to be a little bit more specific on how we interact. It seems a little bit like St. Paul was addressing a specific question that the congregation was asking him. But the important thing to remember here is that he is giving the law and the gospel in miniature with these six verses to serve as the beating heart in the center of chapters 12 through 15. Now, if you are a nerd like me and you are into chiastic structures, trying to find the emphasis points in passages, there is something of a parallel passage to Romans 13 verses 8 through 14. Let's turn to Romans 15 here where he does repeat a lot of what he was just saying. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, and chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, are going to have something of a parallelism, a connection to each other in the overarching structure of these pericopes. Why do I bring that up? Because the entire point is this. St. Paul can give all these specifics regarding what do I do with the Jews in the congregation, or what do we do with these Gentiles in the congregation? He can give the specifics of what do we do about the government. And then in chapter 14, as we will start next week, he starts talking about, well, what do we do with the guy that used to obey all these dietary laws? And what about the guy out there that says, I have freedom in Jesus? And he's answering all these specifics. But in chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, and in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, he connects everything to the overarching principles that should guide our lives as Christians. Know that you are saved, O believer. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ in remembrance of your baptism. Repent of your sins. Yes, Christians must repent of their sins every single day. In fact, morning and night is a great way to do it. But that's what we do, and we move forward knowing that we are saved, knowing that we are forgiven of our sins, 
so that we may do our best to love our neighbor as ourselves, utilizing the Ten Commandments as St. Paul starts listing off, giving his examples, and looking to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ to try to treat others the way he treats others because Jesus, being God, being the perfect God-man, is the one who can and does love people perfectly. We look to his example for that. Wow, I've been talking a mile a minute, haven't I? But you kind of have to. You have to be a little preachy when the verses presented to you are a sermon. I really do believe that St. Paul, with this central few verses here in Romans 13, is presenting as the core of his Coram Mundo section, the Christian's relationship to everybody else. He's presenting a sermon in miniature to help us along that path and to understand the surrounding verses, as he does again in chapter 15. Now, next week, we are going to start getting into uh, very confusing passages for some people. It's crystal clear for others. It depends on what your relationship to certain heinous sins or other religions has been in your life that will help you to understand it. We will get into that next week. I hope until then that you are encouraged by the fact that Christ has died for us and he rose again from the dead that we may be saved that we are justified before him in faith. So these failures to love our neighbors does not give us a reason to despair. In fact, despair itself is a sin. Instead, we should rejoice that God has given us so much hope because our salvation is nearer than it was yesterday. Amen and amen.